Good. It's nice to be in here. It certainly is warmer than it was last Sunday morning, isn't it? Um, You're looking warmer, which is always encouraging for the speaker. Um, The only slight drawback is the sound, and I I felt at certain points that Mariano sounded as if he was in a sauna or something, but um, if you find the echo distracting, just raise your hand and we'll switch the microphone off and I'll just um, speak without it. But if you can cope, we'll, we'll press on. Good, well let's, uh, let's pray and ask for God's help as we, as we come to his word. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you for the freedom to read and to study your life-giving word. Uh, Lord, we would have no hope without it. Uh, but we confess as we come to this text this morning that there is much in it that is perplexing and perhaps not easy to understand. And so we pray that you would draw near to us as we draw near to you and that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand and to obey. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Sir Edwin Landseer, I wonder if you've heard of him. Um, He was uh, a brilliant landscape painter. Uh, His most famous work is The Monarch of the Glen, uh, which is a painting of a magnificent stag in the Highlands of Scotland. Um, You might also be interested to know if you've been to London that he sculpted the lions at the base of Nelson's Column in Trafalgar Square. So he was a very accomplished man. On one of his painting trips to Scotland, uh, Sir Edwin was using a friend's home as a base. And uh, while he was there, he noticed that one of the rooms in the house had been freshly decorated. But unfortunately, uh, somebody had accidentally spilled soda water on one of the walls, leaving a very obvious and rather ugly stain. And so one day when Sir Edwin was alone in the house, uh, he took a piece of charcoal and he began to transform that ugly stain into the outline of a waterfall with trees and wildlife and animals around it. It wasn't easy, it took time and effort, but that drawing actually became one of Landseer's most celebrated works one of his most successful pictures of the Scottish Highlands. Now before that day, when anybody walked into that room, all they saw was the ugly stain. But Sir Edwin saw something else. He saw the potential to make something beautiful out of somebody else's failure. And I start with that this morning because, friends, that is exactly what God is like with us. By his sovereign grace, uh, he's able to bring victory out of our failure. He's able to bring something glorious out of lives that have been horribly stained by sin. And Joshua 8 is a terrific example of the principle. Now last week we saw that um, after the, the victory at Jericho, Um, Israel were defeated at Ai, that's Joshua chapter 7. And we saw that the defeat was the result of disobedience by one man, Achan. 
But that disobedience contaminated and stained the whole community. On top of that, Israel had become complacent. And uh, their complacency and self-confidence led ultimately to defeat and to despair. Now we saw in chapter 7 how God rooted out the disobedience of Achan. He uncovered it, he revealed it to the entire nation and then he dealt with it ruthlessly. And now as we come to chapter 8, God is concerned that Israel should recover the ground that had been lost by sin. We shouldn't think it was easy. We shouldn't think that recovery from spiritual defeat was effortless. But friends, you know what? There is a very clear application in this text to any Christian or to any Christian community of God's people who've suffered defeat. Because Joshua 8 is actually full of instruction and encouragement about the way forward. And the big point of the chapter is that it is God who does the restoring. If you know your Psalms, you remember in Psalm 23 how King David says, God restores my soul. Now you see, that's what God is like. He is a great restorer. Now normally, in everyday life, restoration is a costly and a time-consuming business, especially in the area of broken relationships. So after the incident with Achan last week, we wouldn't be surprised, would we, if Israel felt distanced, separated from God. And we wouldn't be surprised if the conquest of the rest of Canaan were put on the back burner for a few weeks at least. But that's not what happens. As soon as the sin has been dealt with, God's anger is removed and God comes to Joshua with words of encouragement and fresh instructions. And I think that's a marvellous reminder for us this morning that God is totally committed to his people, which means he's totally committed to his church. And the great truth that runs all the way through the Bible is that God wants all his people to be victorious. So if we're in a situation this morning where that is not true for us, then we can take away from Joshua chapter 8 that God wants to bring us through into a place where we experience his grace as more than sufficient for all of our needs. God may not actually remove the problems, but he always gives us grace that is greater than the problems He restores my soul. So let's look at three ways in Joshua chapter 8 by which God began to restore his people Israel, bringing, bringing them from the defeat of last week into victory. First, in verses 1 and 2, and you'll find this on the outline in the service bulletin, 
we find roadblocks removed. Roadblocks removed. You see, when when God begins a work of restoration, either in an individual's life or in a community, he always starts by removing the roadblocks. And if you look with me at verse 1 of the text, you'll see there that God identifies two great roadblocks that were barring the way back to usefulness for Israel. The two great roadblocks were fear and discouragement. Verse 1, Then the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged, do not be discouraged. Now you see, the point is that fear and discouragement paralyse the Christian. Do you remember back in chapter 1, Uh, we saw, didn't we, that Joshua was not naturally courageous. Uh, You may remember that when he took over from Moses, he had to be encouraged over and over again that God was with him and that therefore he should neither fear nor be discouraged. I think that's because by nature, Joshua was prone to both. And last week in chapter 7, we saw how quickly despair took control of his heart. We heard Joshua saying to the Lord, it's all over for us because we've suffered this terrible defeat. Whatever's going to happen to us? Whatever's going to happen to your great name, Lord? It seems, I think, that Joshua's basic temperament was pessimistic. And although he had marvellous experiences of God's power and God's presence, his basic temperament didn't change. Now I think that's interesting because the same is true for us. As we mature as Christians, one of the things we need to learn is how to be our own spiritual doctors. That is, to know ourselves and to know our own temperaments. Because, you see, when you become a Christian, God doesn't necessarily change your temperament. He made us just the way we are. Some of us are more outgoing than others. Some of us are more optimistic than others. And, you see, God wants us to be able to cope with our temperament and to be able to experience his grace and his strength, overcoming whatever weaknesses we might have. But God doesn't necessarily change our temperament. What he does do is overcome the downdrag of sin that feeds on our temperamental weaknesses. And both fear and discouragement can be sinful if they prevent us from obeying God. And God wants us to deal with that. You see, the problem is that fear and discouragement can can actually paralyse what God wants to do in our lives. And so fear says, well, what will happen if I fail again? How will I cope 
if God leads me into a situation that's very demanding, that's what fear says. Discouragement says that, you know, things can never actually be the same as they were before. Um, I think I really must settle now for some lower expectations. I can't really expect God to change me radically. It's actually too big a job, even for God. And you see, both fear and discouragement imagine that the future is as black and as bleak as it possibly could be. And they ignore the power of the God of love, who, we're told in the Bible, is working everything together for the good of those who love him. Now, why is this so important? Well, it's important because, you see, we can become so fearful and so discouraged because of our failures and because of our defeats in the past that we are useless to God in the present. Unless we are spiritually wide awake, Satan will use these roadblocks to destroy our witness, to dismantle our ministry, and to extinguish our hope. So friends, we need to look out for these roadblocks and we need to know how to deal with them. What's the answer? Well, verse 1 gives us the answer and it comes from God himself. So we should pay attention. God says, Joshua, take the whole army with you and go up and attack Ai. For I have delivered into your hands the king of Ai, his people, his city and his land. Now you see from that verse that God's answer is two things. First, it is to make full use of the resources that God has given. Do you see there, God says, take the whole army. In other words, there has to be maximum effort. Second, there has to be full dependence on God. I have delivered into your hands this city. In other words, there has to be maximum trust. So friends, the way through the roadblocks of fear and discouragement in our lives is maximum effort using all of the resources God has put at our disposal and maximum trust, which here is highlighted by the past tense when God says, I have delivered. Now, of course, the truth is that when God said that, the city hadn't actually been delivered into their hands. But God is saying, you see, that it is so certain that I can talk about it in the past tense as a completed action. As far as I'm concerned, the city is yours. So maximum effort, maximum trust. And those two things belong together. You see, when we've lost ground in our Christian lives, we have to fight to get it back. 
So if you're feeling discouraged about where you are with the Lord this morning, maybe that's the reason. We need to understand that God doesn't always give it back to us on a plate. What he does do is supply the energy and the the ability that we need when we put our trust in him. Now last week, do you remember that uh, when Israel were defeated at Ai, their hearts melted. Their courage and their confidence just evaporated in a heartbeat. Now God knew all about that. And so in his grace, he accommodates himself to their need. And he renews their faith and confidence with a very specific promise. I have delivered the city into your hands. Now, if you and I are in a situation where we need to be restored spiritually after some defeat or setback, or if we're trying to help somebody else in that kind of situation, let's learn the lessons that uh, God puts into effect here about the way forward. Because, you see, the way forward is not throwing our hands in the air and wishing that things were better. The way forward is building on the promises of God by putting the maximum effort into obeying his commands. Now I realise none of us can actually do that unless the Holy Spirit enables us. But do we actually seriously think that the Holy Spirit is unwilling to do that? Of course not. Scripture says, doesn't it, that God is stretching out his hands to us day after day. So if you or I are not experiencing the enabling of the Spirit... It's not because God is unwilling. Provided you and I have repented of our sin and we're not quenching or grieving the Holy Spirit by pride or unbelief or some gross sin or other, then as far as God is concerned, the channel is open. So the only other explanation is that we're unwilling to put in the effort. So if we spent more time in prayer claiming the promises of God and walking in obedience to his commands and less time complaining about our circumstances and sighing about all of the difficulties, we might actually make some progress. Because what is actually required is maximum effort and maximum trust. That's actually the pattern all the way through the Bible. I'd like to give you an example from the New Testament. So won't you please keep a finger in Joshua and turn with me to Colossians chapter 1 on page 834. Colossians chapter 1, page 834. Now this is exactly the same spiritual principle. Uh, In this part of the letter, the Apostle Paul is describing his ministry and uh, we're going to pick it up at verse 28. Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. 
Paul says, we proclaim him, that is Christ, we proclaim him admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. Now here it is, verse 29. To this end I labour. Now that is a very, very strong word in the original. It means I work as hard as I possibly can. Struggling, says Paul. So Paul says I toil, I labour as a Christian, I struggle. Now notice this. With all his energy which so powerfully works in me. You see, the energy to do the labouring is God's energy. The ability to do the toiling and the struggling in the Christian life is God's ability. Nevertheless, I've got to do the struggling. I've got to do the toiling. I've got to do the working. I expect some of you have heard that uh, illustration. It's it's quite a familiar one, but let me just mention it again. About the man who uh, wanted to know how he could get victory in the Christian life. Um, And somebody said to him, well, um, let God do it for you. And so uh, on the wall of his bedroom, he put six letters. L-E-T-G-O-D. Let God But when he came home from work that evening, unfortunately, the last letter had dropped off. And uh, so now it said, let go. And he said, oh, now I understand, of course. What I've got to do is let go and let God. Now, of course, there is a slight element of truth in that because all of us have to let God be God in our lives. But you see, what we mustn't do, we must not fall into the trap of thinking that God isn't going to make us work as Christians in the Christian life. God expects us to work. And he expects us to work, for example, at healing broken relationships. He expects us to work at rebuilding where the devil has been tearing things down. You see, it's not given to us on a plate. I think many Christians think that it is, but it isn't. The energy is God's. But in Joshua chapter 8, Israel still had to go back and attack the city of Ai. They had to go back and fight for that city because of the ground that they lost through disobedience. And I believe that that's a spiritual principle that runs all the way through the Bible. It is God's strategy, it is God's strength, but it's our obedience and it is our willingness to tap into the strength of God that is absolutely vital. Because when that happens, the roadblocks get removed and restoration begins. So God's first move in restoring his people is removing the roadblocks. But in Joshua chapter 8, if you'll come back there now, we find that having done that, God does something even more wonderful. And I'm calling this victory promised. 
victory promised. It's a big chunk of the text from verse 3 through to verse 29. Now the details of the military campaign I think are pretty clear. They're fairly straightforward. Um, Back in chapter 7, Israel had been complacent. Do you remember that from last week? Only a few men were involved in going up to attack the city. But here, the entire army is mobilised. Verse 3, So Joshua and the whole army moved out to attack Ai. And where before they'd sort of kind of casually strolled up to Ai with their hands in their pockets, thinking it would all be a bit of a doddle, now the Lord has got a very elaborate strategy for them to follow. Now from Gilgal, which is where their camp was, uh, through to Ai was about 15 miles. And uh, the road ran uh, straight from Jericho north to the city. It was a distance that they could easily cover by night. And that's what happens in verses 3 and 4. In order to set the ambush before dawn um, behind the city. And then you'll notice that the plan is that the the main army will advance towards the gates of the city, verse 5, in order to draw out the defenders. And, uh, of course, uh, at that point, the men of AI will be saying to themselves, well, gosh, this is a bit of an action replay. Um, We've seen all this before. Uh, Last time they ran away... They're going to run away again. Let's go after them. We can kill a few more Israelites. But this time, their overconfidence and their carelessness is going to leave the city undefended. And that will give the troops in the ambush the opportunity to take the city and set it on fire. Verse 7. Now what we need to remember here is that the, the orders that Joshua gives to the army are not his own. Uh, In verse 8, notice this, Joshua tells his fighting men, do what the Lord has commanded. So the pattern is that God gives the orders to Joshua, Joshua passes them on to the army. Notice also that Joshua attributes the victory to the Lord even before it's happened. Verse 7. The Lord your God will give it into your hand. Now that's interesting because it's a sign that um, Joshua has recovered his spiritual equilibrium, isn't it? It's God who's going to win the battle. And then in verses 9 to 29, we find how this worked out in detail. And whereas um, chapter 7, verse 26 ends with a large pile of rocks heaped over the body of Achan, which was really a memorial to Israel's defeat due to disobedience. In chapter 8, verse 29, there is another large pile of rocks heaped over the king of Ai. But this time, it's a memorial to Israel's victory achieved by the power of God alone. All of this is God's initiative. Joshua had an important responsibility. His responsibility was obedience. 
humanly speaking, the victory actually depended on Joshua's obedience. You can see that in verse 26, can't you? Um, Verse 26 says, For Joshua did not draw back the hand that held out his javelin until he had destroyed all who lived in Ai. But the victory was secured by God's initiative and by his power alone. Now friends, if we are going to enjoy spiritual victories in our lives, if we're going to experience God's deliverance and God's power over the forces of sin that all of us wrestle with, we're going to need to remind ourselves that it is always God's initiative. Every virtue we possess, every victory won, every thought we might have of holiness, all of that is of God. You remember, don't you, when the Apostle Paul said, I can do all things, he also said, I can do them through Christ who strengthens me. So you see, if we do what the Lord has commanded, we have the promise that by his strength we will conquer. It's a great promise. Now here's the thing. Why was there such an elaborate strategy here in Joshua chapter 8? Why did they have to have the ambush and uh, the men coming out and chasing the Israelites away? I mean, what's that all about? I mean, after all, when Israel conquered Jericho, all they had to do was give a great shout of faith and the walls came tumbling down. But this is intricate, this is detailed, this is elaborate. Why? Well, I want to suggest to you that it has a tremendous spiritual significance that God was actually using the circumstances of Israel's defeat in chapter 7 in order to win the victory in chapter 8. In other words, God used the situation that Israel suffered before of fleeing from the men of Ai as a major ingredient in the victory. And I want to pause on this for just a moment and suggest to you that this is actually a characteristic of God. It's part of his restoration strategy. You know, friends, there are no dead ends with God. When God restores us, he uses all that is in the past. That's why the prophet Joel says that God restores the years that the locusts have eaten. And so just as Sir Edwin uh, used somebody's mistake on the wall of that house to create something beautiful, so God uses even our failures and mistakes as part of his strategy for restoration and victory. Now that's what's going on here. Do you remember that um, they called the place where Achan was stoned and buried, 
They called it the Valley of Achor. That's chapter 7, verse 26. If you look down to the bottom of the page, you'll find there's a footnote in the NIV. And it says that that word Achor means trouble. So that valley was a memorial for Israel of the trouble that follows disobedience. Now the question is, how does God deal with that? Well, let's look at another Old Testament passage that I think illuminates this in the most amazing way. Keep a finger in Joshua and turn to Hosea chapter 2 on page 629. Hosea chapter 2, page 629. By the way, these cross-references, I'm not just trying to keep you awake here. It's very important that we compare Scripture with Scripture in order to see that God's patterns of dealing with us are consistent. Now here in Hosea, um, God is speaking through the prophet about his plan... to to restore the nation of Israel and to to bring them back to himself after they've wandered away. And he speaks about it in the language of a husband winning back a wife who has left him. So follow with me in the text, please. Hosea Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. God says... Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There, I will give her back her vineyards and will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the day she came up out of Egypt. Is that not very striking? It is, isn't it? The valley of Achor becomes a door of hope. In other words, the principle on which God operates is that the place of trouble becomes a doorway of hope. And that's grace, isn't it? Isn't that what happened at Calvary? I mean, you can't have a, a place of greater trouble than Calvary's cross, can you? But it became a door of hope for everybody who trusts in Christ. And friends, you see, the point is that for the Christian, spiritual defeat never need be more than temporary. It's never the end. Because our God makes the place of judgment into a place of forgiveness and restoration. He turns our valley of defeat into the victory of faith. I mean, even the valley of the shadow of death is a door of hope, isn't it? Because it's a door of hope into the presence of God for the Christian. So, our God turns Achor, the place of trouble, into hope when we put our trust in him. Nothing is wasted. Even our failures become part of his strategy for victory if we give our failures to him in repentance and faith. And so that's why back in Joshua chapter 7 that that running away from AI in defeat is used by God to bring victory 
in chapter 8. It means, doesn't it, that God can take the very end of our lives, the, the mess-ups, the failures, the brokenness, and, and as we put those things into his hands in faith, he gives victory instead of failure. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? It's a wonderful thing. And can I say to us this morning that that's why we need to stop complaining about our circumstances and our problems and it's why we need to exercise maximum effort in obeying God's commands and maximum trust that God really will take all of our brokenness and failure and lead us into victory. Well, now when God does that, when God does give his people victory in place of failure, the great question is, how are you and I meant to respond to that? Well, come back to Joshua and notice lastly and very briefly the covenant renewed in verses 30 to 35. Now, we didn't have time to read this before because it's quite a long chapter, but it's the conclusion and it's very important. Verse 30, Joshua chapter 8. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. Uh, You can later look that up in Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 1 and following. But the point is, that after the victory at Ai, God instructed Israel to make a 30-mile pilgrimage all the way through enemy territory to the Valley of Shechem. Um, The Valley of Shechem is is two miles wide, uh, with Mount Ebal on one side and Mount Gerizim on the other side. It's a natural amphitheatre with absolutely perfect acoustics, unlike this hall this morning. Now that was really important because the purpose of the pilgrimage was to enable all of Israel to take part in a very remarkable ceremony. We pick up the story at verse 31, right at the end of verse 31. On the altar they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and they sacrificed fellowship offerings. There, in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua copied on stones the law of Moses which he had written. All Israel, aliens and citizens alike, were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, so God is present, facing those who carried it, the priests who were Levites. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half in front of Mount Ebal as Moses, uh, the servant of the Lord, had formally commanded. Verse 34. Afterwards, Joshua read all the words of the law, the blessings and the curses, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and children and the aliens who lived among them. What on earth is that all about? Well, remember, will you, 
that Israel have just won a major victory. But God knows perfectly well that after any victory in the Christian life, that you and I are quite likely to drift. That our commitment to God can soon become decidedly wobbly and inconsistent. In fact, I'm sure I don't just speak for myself when I say it's never very long before we begin to think that we won the victory all by ourselves. So you see, like Israel here, after any victory in the Christian life, we need to be reminded of the only basis upon which a relationship with God is possible at all. Now, for Israel here, uh, that meant Joshua reading out all the words of the law, uh, including the blessings and the curses, life or death, heaven, hell, which depended on Israel's obedience or their disobedience. Because Israel needed to be reminded that their security was guaranteed if they obeyed, but if they rebelled, disaster was certain to follow. Now, my dear friends, you and I need to hear that as well this morning. You see, you cannot play at being a Christian. When we are convicted by God's word of our sin and our disobedience, the good news is that God loves to restore those who come back to him in penitence and faith. And like Israel here, we can rejoice in the fact that we have an altar, that there is a way back to God from the dark paths of sin that it starts at Calvary and it leads to victory. Praise God for that. But, let's also remember that you cannot worship at the altar, at the cross, and continue living in disobedience. Now, there are lots and lots of people in churches every week who are trying to do precisely that. But it leads only to defeat and despair. But if we are sincerely seeking to live in obedience, even though we'll sometimes stumble, if our lives are characterised by faith and repentance, then God is with us. And because God is absolutely committed to those who really do trust him, his victories will be ours. And he will restore your soul. Well, let's have a moment of quiet and let's reflect on this in our own lives. Let's just close eyes for a moment because uh, this morning we have our own covenant renewal ceremony, don't we, as we come to the Lord's table. Now I don't know what's going on for you this morning. Uh, Maybe there's somebody here who's feeling totally defeated spiritually 
future looks very dark, very uncertain. Well, if that's you, then as you prepare to come to the Lord's table, won't you remember that God is a wonderful restorer? He can restore your soul. And so as you eat and drink this morning, why don't you ask God for strength to make the maximum effort to obey his commands and ask for grace to exercise maximum trust in God's promises of victory over sin and all darkness. And if you do both of those things, God will begin to remove all the roadblocks of fear and discouragement. He will restore your soul. New victories will be possible again. But maybe that's not you. Maybe things have been pretty good for you recently. No major setbacks. But in your heart, you know you've become complacent. You've stopped thanking God for his many blessings. You no longer marvel at everything that he's already done for you. And the truth is, you've stopped making the maximum effort to obey God's commands and you're no longer exercising maximum trust in God's promises because your trust is in other things, in worldly things, and you're drifting. Now, my friend, if that's you, that's dangerous. Defeat and despair are just round the corner. But God can restore your soul as well. But in order for that to happen, you must be completely honest before God about your sin. No cover-ups. Don't be like Achan and try and hide it in your tent. God knows all about it anyway. But he wants you to confess it before him now. To repent to exercise maximum trust in Christ alone. Now if you do that, then as you eat and drink at the Lord's table, ask for grace to be ruthless with dealing with the sin in your life. Tell the Lord that you're making a fresh commitment to live in obedience to his commands. But tell him also that you need his strength to do it. And now for all of us, as we prepare our hearts for the covenant meal, we need to start by confessing our sins. For some of us, that might be the sin of unbelief, because we've been doubting the goodness and the power of God. For others, it might be the sin of pride, thinking that we know better than God and we've left him out of our lives altogether. Isaiah 30 verse 15 says, 
This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you would have none of it. Well, let's say the confession together as it appears on the screen. Together. Holy One, we confess that we are people who do not trust you. We are stubborn and rebellious, habitually unwilling to hear your loving fatherly instruction. We have repeatedly despised your words and have even despised your incarnate word, Jesus Christ, pursuing him to death. Dear Jesus, what a specific, staggering, atoning love you have shown us in the midst of our weakness. The sins you were dying for were ours, and we are eternally deeply grateful for this inconceivable act of love. Help us, our Father, to trust you in the midst of this earthly life. We grow weary and our strength is small as we fight against the sin in our hearts and in the hearts of others. Help us to find our all in all in no less than Jesus Christ himself. In his name we pray. Amen. Isaiah chapter 30 verse 18 says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. Well, let's respond to God's invitation to come to the table, saying together, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come to your table because Jesus died for our sins. We come in humility, trusting in Jesus and not in ourselves, and ask that as we eat this bread and grape juice, that we may be united to him and he to us. Amen. I'm going to ask the stewards to come forward and uh, take the veil off the bread and grape juice. And won't you come forward and take a piece of bread and a cup and return to your seat. And then we'll all take part together.